Our reading is 2 Thessalonians 1, 3 through 12. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love all of you have for one another is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right, and as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble, trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to those who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in the blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you, because you have believed our testimony to you. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling, and that by his power he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and for every deed prompted by faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Tovi, and uh, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, my name is Madush. I'm one of the ministers here at uh, Trinity Church. Uh, let me add my <clears throat> welcome to Ben's and uh, join with him in expressing great sadness at Queen Elizabeth's death. Though we mourn her loss, there is so much in her life for us to give thanks for. She confessed faith in Jesus, and her glory now is in Christ. Our text, what we've just read, points us to that very same glory, and that's what we're going to be dwelling on. We're starting the series on prayer, and uh, this passage we've read from 2 Thessalonians is um, a prayer um, that Paul writes for the church in Thessalonica. A prayer, very simply, is just talking to God. That's obvious, right? But isn't it remarkable that the God who flung the stars into space, the one who orchestrates the changing of seasons, who appoints kings and queens, wants to know people like us and talk to us and have us talk to him. He loves. He moves towards us. He befriends us. And yet it's no small thing to be in the presence of the living God, to stand in the light of his blazing glory and to speak, knowing that he hears and responds. See, that access to God, to his throne room, is possible only through the merits of Jesus, who he is and what he's done. We sang this in one of our songs earlier. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so for us to pray in Jesus' name, 
is to rely on what Jesus has done for us, and not the worthiness of who we are or what we've done. He's the one who makes those who depend on him acceptable before God, so that God doesn't just hear us the way he hears the waves crashing against rocks. He answers the prayers of his people as a father who cares. In Jesus, God, who holds creation in his hands, bends down to bless us. It's truly marvelous. God invites us to know him more and more deeply. And we're dwelling on how we talk to him. I think at the same time, as we reflect on um, our religion, we realize that so much of it tends to be focused on the needs that we feel from day to day, our pursuit of our own happiness and fulfillment. We're so easily preoccupied with what's immediately in front of us. The baby's crying, so you forget that the stove is on. We don't often dwell as much as we should on God, what he's like, what he desires, what he seeks in us and wants for us. We're not captivated as we should be by his holiness and his love. It's rather like having a lifelong friend who's so precious to you and yet always distracted. You give more and more of yourself pour out your joys and your hopes, reveal your hurts and fears, longing for deep communion. But they're only half listening. And so while they give you some reassurance, it's fairly superficial. And then they tell you about how they got wet waiting for the bus and what happened to the neighbor's cat. It's great to know, but not quite the depth you are after. We're often like that distracted friend when we talk to God. And yet God faithfully speaks to us. Through scripture, we come to know him and share in his life. We can approach him with true knowledge of who he is. And as his words shape the way that we talk to him, we'll experience prayer for what it is a real conversation with a real person, a person that we are growing to love and enjoy more and more. And so as we look at these prayers of the New Testament, they are models for us, not in the sense of trying to mimic exactly what they say. We're not gonna try and unpack every detail, but we're gonna try and let the priorities that shape these prayers become our priorities because that's what God cares for. Two Thessalonians. <clears throat> it's written by the Apostle Paul, sent by Jesus to proclaim the message of salvation. He, with Silas and Timothy, writes this letter to the church in Thessalonica. And as usual, he begins with thanksgiving before making these requests to God. Notice how verse 11 starts. He writes, With this in mind, we constantly pray for you, 
with what in mind? Well, what he said in those verses just before us. See, in verses 3 and 4, we see his gratitude for signs of God's grace among these Christians. And then in verses 5 to 10, his confidence in God's perfect justice at Christ's return. The call is for us to thank God for signs of his grace in these first couple of verses. See, in God's economy, thanksgiving is central. What are the things that you typically give thanks for? Like us, you might say grace at meals, thanking God for our food, for his daily provision for our needs. We say thank you when uh, the mortgage we applied for comes through, or that application for the job is successful. We say thank you when we recover from a serious illness, and we breathe a sigh of relief when we narrowly escape some danger. You can add to the list. But I hope you'll notice a thread that runs through those prayers. By and large, our gratitude is tied to our material well-being and comfort. And if those are the sorts of things that we are thankful for, it's because that is what we treasure. And so at the first reading, Paul's thanksgiving from verse 3 is rather surprising because it focuses on things that we don't habitually value or things that over time we've come to take for granted. <clears throat> so why does he give thanks? Well, first, verse 3, because the faith of these Christians is growing more and more. See, beyond their initial conversion, coming to believe the testimony about Jesus, they've been growing to rely on him more and more in their daily lives, aware of their weakness, their limitations. They've come to habitually look to Jesus as the one who supplies their need. Well, second, still in verse 3, because the love all of them have for one another is increasing. It seems to go beyond the like-mindedness and cohesion that comes from having a shared interest. I think you come across that in groups and clubs all over the place. But despite the great diversity that probably exists among them, socioeconomically, culturally, in their tastes and temperament. Their allegiance to Christ takes primacy. They don't just have a positive disposition towards one another. They're practically committed to each other's well-being. And that's often a costly commitment. The, the one thing I've commented on again and again as, uh, as my family has kind of settled in here at Trinity Church is the love that you have for one another, the warmth that we've experienced as people have spoken to us, the readiness people have shown to welcome us into their homes and to come into ours, a real enjoyment of one another. You like hanging out with each other. That's not that common. 
but it is a sign of God's work in you. The third sign of God's grace, verse 4, is that they're persevering under trial. They're standing, continuing to cling to Christ and rely on him in the face of persecution. Despite the hostility from those around them, their neighbors, colleagues, maybe even their families, they're continuing to love others and proclaim Christ at great personal cost. It's the opposite of pursuing their material well-being and comfort. They are putting themselves in the line of fire because they care for those around them. Paul is saying, he's boasting to the other churches, look at the way these Christians withstand the pressures of their trials. Isn't it remarkable? Isn't it a compelling testimony to the grace of God? Their faith, their love, their endurance in their trials, all signs of God's grace. How does that bear on our prayer? Well, it should encourage us to look for signs of God's grace, not just in our lives, but in the lives of others. It nurtures an other person-centeredness, an awareness of what God is doing in the people around us. And it focuses not on people's ability or their determination. It focuses on how God is at work in them, how God is changing them. And it should challenge our value system. See, the measure of God's work in our lives is not how skillful we are at avoiding pain or in how comfortable we are or in how much success we enjoy. The measure of God's work in us is how dependent we are and how we respond when pain, loss, and hardship come, which they will. What is it that we treasure? Do we cling to Christ as these Christians did? Do we love like them? Do we keep going when it's hard? Well, look for those signs, and where you see them, praise God. Well, that's the first couple of verses. Seeing God's signs of grace and giving thanks for them. From verse 5, the call is for us to be confident in God's justice now and at Christ's return. Verse 5 is really quite surprising. Um, it's a little hard to take, honestly, but it's certainly surprising. Their faith, love, and endurance is apparently evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, they'll be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which they're suffering. Interesting. It seems like in Jesus' kingdom, suffering is the path to glory. Now, that's certainly the testimony of Scripture um, right throughout. But Paul seems to be saying here that these Christians are counted worthy of the glory that is before them 
by their suffering. God is using their trials to produce in them the faith, love, and hope that characterizes his people. It's evident that God is at work in them through their afflictions. He's sustaining them, growing them. Their suffering isn't producing prejudice or anger or bitterness. They're not trying to take matters into their own hands and impose some form of their own justice. They're not always grumpy because life is so hard and unfair. No, their suffering is cultivating love and compassion. You see how this challenges our values again? Our natural desire is for easy lives. It shouldn't be. It should be for Jesus. And for Jesus to make us more like him. That's God's priority. And what we see in here is that we should expect God to use suffering, opposition because we trust in Jesus, to bring that about. So counterintuitively, their endurance in affliction, which looks rather unjust, reveals God's right judgment and their worthiness for God's kingdom. It's quite a paradox. But there's more. Because God is just, he will also reverse the fortunes of the persecuted and the persecutors in the future. Verse 6, he will pay back trouble to the troublemakers. And verse 7, he will give relief to the afflicted, including the apostles themselves, who are constantly facing opposition for proclaiming Christ. We see a situation of injustice, the persecution of the innocent. We experience the cruelty, power, and arrogance of the wicked. We experience opposition, harassment, ridicule. It may not be violent persecution for us, but there's still real opposition. Some lose their livelihoods or are shut out from particular organizations or opportunities. We get pushed to the fringes of society, nudged out of public discourse. The wicked seem to flourish and the righteous suffer. And we cry out to God, why don't you do something about it? Well, Paul here is giving us fresh lenses through which to see. God is doing something, and he will do something. At Jesus' return in power and glory, believers will be delivered from their trials, while those who don't know God will be punished for their willful rejection of Jesus. The costly service that Jesus calls us to is not without purpose. God is just even in situations that look decidedly unjust. Now for me, as I've dwelt on this in the last couple of days, is a really hard teaching. Both sides of it. God's purpose now in the suffering of his people 
That's hard to take. And the punishment of those who reject Jesus, that's also hard to take. Do we seriously believe that? Well, yes, we should, because that's what God says. Let me read it for you again. Look at how Jesus' return is described. I'll pick it up from verse 7. This will happen, the judgment of the wicked and deliverance of God's people. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who've believed. It will be clear to all people, in a way that it's not today, that Jesus rules over an everlasting kingdom, that all dominion, power, and majesty are his. No one is going to deny at that point the right claim he has over our lives. Human wickedness, the evil done in opposition to his rule, foolish arrogance, those things will be exposed for what they are, and there will be nowhere left to hide. Let's be clear. This is not the picture of a petty or a vengeful deity. Here is the king of glory, who has always remained in control of human history, working out his purposes. His final judgment is the outworking of his settled hostility to human sin and rebellion. It is the right and just consequence for those who, having been invited into his presence, have spurned him. They've rejected the invitation with contempt. And so they find themselves shut out from his presence. But to be shut out from his presence is to be cut off from the source of all goodness, truth, and beauty. The consequences are severe. Do you notice a characteristic that sets them apart? It's in verse 8. They do not know God and do not listen to or obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They've heard the message of Jesus and rejected it. By contrast, the people who are delivered, there it is in verse 10, just like these Thessalonian Christians, those who are delivered have believed the apostolic testimony about Jesus. They heard the gospel and believed it. So what? Well, Paul's outlook is oriented towards the end of the age. What we see and experience now is not all there is. 
Jesus is coming back. Our glory is in Christ. It's not in our status or wealth or power. It's not in our comfort or how much fun we can cram into every week. Our glory is in Christ. God will finally deliver his people. But those who don't know him will be cut off forever. Now, I think many of us, especially if we've been Christians for a while, intellectually accept that. But the reality is that we remain focused on the here and now, on what we can see and touch and taste. The result is that our decisions, our desires, are so often muddled. We spend ourselves, we give the very best of ourselves to store up treasure for this life. We harbor resentment against those who oppose or harm us, not compassion. We dwell on our comfort and success, or that of our loved ones by extension, not our growth and character, or their growth in character. Our priorities in life, and so our priorities in prayer, are not God's priorities. <clears throat> That's heavy. <laughs> but remember the thanksgiving. <laughs> Paul starts this letter with thanksgiving. There are real signs of grace here. That's why in verse 11, when we get to Paul's requests, he asks that God would make these Christians worthy of his calling. He's asking God to exercise his power to bring to fruition their every desire for goodness and their every deed prompted by faith. Our God is compassionate. He knows that our allegiances are divided. He calls us anyway. And he abundantly gives all that we need to follow him so that we are worthy of his calling. God himself is at work within us. He gave us faith to trust in Jesus. He is renewing us so that our minds affections and wills conform to his. He is cultivating new desires in us for what is good and pleasing to him. And so we gradually start to make different day-to-day -day decisions. Our hopes, ambitions, and goals in life change. His priorities genuinely do become ours. So that finally, Jesus would be glorified, and we would be glorified in him. But you see in verse 12, what grounds this prayer. Now, Paul is able to say all of this stuff and ask for all of these amazing things, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Paul's intent isn't to make them feel like they're not measuring up. So they grit their teeth and try harder. Now he wants them to see with a fresh perspective, with new eyes. 
Look at the signs of God's grace among you. Wow, what an encouragement. Look at God's plans for you. You can be absolutely confident that they will come to fruition at the end of the age. There's no doubt about it. And so you can rely on God to supply more grace. He is powerfully at work in everyone who is trusting Him. We become fruitful by His grace. We persevere by His grace. We mature by grace. By grace, we grow to love one another more and more. By grace, we come to cherish holiness and a deepening knowledge of God. God's words show us His heart. Shaping our prayers with His words, the vision of reality that Scripture portrays, is going to draw us into deeper fellowship with Him. It's going to help us embrace who God is as He has made Himself known. All that He's done, even who we are and where we are going. It will change what we value and treasure. And our priorities will increasingly align with His. And one of the great outcomes is that we will more readily notice answers to our prayers because we are praying in line with God's will. We and those we love will experience pain and loss and hardship. But faith, love, and hope is increasingly going to come to characterize us. We will delight in our Savior all the more. And we will courageously speak of Christ at great personal cost. I'm going to pray for us that God will bring that out, bring that about among us. God, we rejoice in your grace poured out for us. We rejoice in your work through the Lord Jesus, that it is only because of his work that we can come and stand before you, that we can speak and know that you hear and answer us. Thank you for your grace among us. Thank you for the signs of living faith in this church. Thank you that among us there are people who are growing aware of their weakness and coming to depend more on you, who are making daily decisions, who are taking risks joyfully because their confidence is in you. Thank you, God, for the love that we have for one another, that there is real enjoyment for each other here, that there's a real desire to spend time together, that there is costly commitment amongst us for one another's well-being. And thank you, God, that we stand firm, that there is a, a real desire to show compassion and continue to speak of Christ even where we face opposition. Will you fix our eyes on Jesus' return at the end of the age? Will you help us to look to him with great hope and with great love for those around us? 
Make us worthy of your calling, we pray. Make us reliant on your power so that we desire what is good and our actions would bear fruit for your kingdom. Amen.